When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Surprise! But you weren't expecting an episode during the week, were you? Aha! Uh-huh. Well, you see, I've been feeling a bit generous lately. Since you guys have been so generous to me, I decided to give back with this episode. But WDF Extra will be the name of that feed. Whether you want to call it a member's feed, a premium feed, a, I don't know, feed me feed, <laughs> whatever you like, it's there and it's going to be accessible to those of you who pay $5 or more a month And in order to get to the point where we're offering extra content, apart from just offering the episodes a week earlier with no ads or anything like that, I decided to give you a preview of the kind of things you can expect on WDF Extra. This episode also serves as a chance to reach out to more people who may or may not be aware about the move to Patreon that When Diplomacy Fails has made. And it also gives me a chance to excuse myself for the episode that's coming on Monday, because... When I recorded that episode yesterday, we were at a certain level, and now we're at a different level. But I think it's safe enough to say, although I don't want to be counted wrong again, so don't quote me on this. I think it's alright to say that aiming for $300 a month is not only doable, but hopefully won't be done in the space of like two or three days. So we can actually talk about it a tiny bit before talking about it becomes obsolete. If you get my meaning, what I mean by that is yesterday I made a big deal about how $120 was amazing and now we're at nearly $150. So if anyone would like to go and contribute and push us up towards $300, then this is the kind of stuff you guys can expect. In other words, if you contribute now, you're going to be helping me make more of these kinds of episodes to be available for the likes of you, my patrons, because you are just so darn good. I think a member's feed is really the way to go because... You guys listen to podcasts, and while I do offer reading materials and all that kind of thing, and of course, wonderful merchandise and t-shirts and books, I know you guys are mainly here for the podcasts, because that's how you found me in the first place. So I'll be offering more podcasts to those who give more. It's very simple. And the idea is, the more we expand, the more I can give. Not just to the patrons, but hopefully to the normal history friends as well. So yeah, that's the plan. Is it a bit cheeky to just... Use this as a vehicle to promote myself? No, because you know what? I had an epiphany the other day. I am happy with the podcast. I'm really happy with the way it's gone, and I'm really happy that you guys support it. But I've been told so many times that you have to... 
how do I put this without sounding big-headed? But maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe I'm so worried about being big-headed that I don't stop to say, hey, do you know what? I'm worth it. So that's probably why you've noticed me being a bit, I don't know if aggressive is the right way to put it, but certainly more active on the Facebook page with basically sharing everything to do with Patreon and getting people forward. Because nine times out of ten, even though you like the podcast, you won't see everything that appears on it for whatever reason. It's just the way Facebook's algorithm works and it's kind of annoying. Because I don't have Twitter or anything like that and it's the last thing I want to do at this stage. It's even less appealing than Instagram and that's saying something. Because of that, I use Facebook as my way to get the word out there. So when people don't always see this stuff, I was trying to think of a different way then to find people again. And I thought, hey, why don't I just release a podcast on one of the things I planned on doing anyway? So yeah, you're getting it for free rather than having to pay for it. That's nice. And all you have to do is listen to this little ramble at the start of the episode asking you to sign up. Where can you go to sign up to save all this rambling for the future? Well... If you go to WDFpodcast.com and click on the Patreon banner there, that'll do it. But if you also go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, then that would do it too. From as little as $5 a month, you too can be part of what will eventually be a member's feed. So that's exciting because it means we're moving forward. That's what it's all about, isn't it? To those of you who are already given money... Sorry that you have to hear this all over again, but at least you guys know you've done your bit already. Some of you have done a considerable bit already, and I really do appreciate that. You know who you are. Actually, hold on. You don't know who you are, because part of the terms is that I give a shout-out to the people that actually are my patrons. What a concept. I mean, it's not like I have that as one of my rewards in the episode. Janie Mac, what's wrong with me? Okay, well, I suppose I can just say all their names then. Start with the earliest ones to the most recent. Okay, are you ready for this? Thanks very much to Joe, Andy, Mike C, Preet S, Michael M, Zhao, Alex, Mark, John, that's my dad, Sarah, that's my sister, Anna, that's my future wife, Demace, hope I'm pronouncing him right. He's a longtime Swedish listener and very good history friend. Actually, if he's from, I'm pretty sure he's from Sweden. If he's from Norway or or Denmark, he's going to hate me now, but thanks very much, Demace Olsen, whose name I just pronounced wrong. Oh, well, I've been pronouncing it wrong in my head all this time anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Thanks also to Holly, who's been a recent listener, but who's given a good bit these days, and also Richard and Tyler. Anyone else out there who would like to become a patron? You can join the party, support When Diplomacy Fails, and get your name on the Hall of Fame, which you can find on the website. Okay, so if... You guys are able to withstand all that Patreon promotion. It has to be done, guys. I think going forward, this is the best way to bring When Diplomacy Fails forward and make it, perhaps, I mean, I don't want to hold my breath and I don't want to quit my job either, but it'd be great if I could turn this hobby into something that earns enough that I could make it part of my job. I don't know how I'd work that, but it's at least better to know that there's a way, a genuine way to make money out of this rather than just peanuts, because... Peanuts are nice for a while, but you can't live off them forever. So, I'd like to think that you guys, by helping me with this Patreon, can really advance when diplomacy fails. Advance the life of Zach Twomley, and hey, guess who's getting married in May? Guess who's gonna give you a gigantic-ass present in May? This guy right here. This sick guy right here. And you'll see just how sick I am come May. But yeah, let's get into this. I won't take you to anything specific in particular, I'm just going to ask you a somewhat specific question before we begin. Here's the question. To what extent was Ferdinand II, Holy Roman Emperor, we all know and love him, 
a victim of his own success? That's the question. That's the question we're going to investigate today. Welcome to the first episode of WDF Extra, guys. Hope it didn't scare you off. It's time to begin. Defenestration of Prague on the 23rd of May, 1618, precipitated one of the most destructive conflicts the world had ever seen, lasting three decades and spilling into theatres across Europe and the world. Combining religious sectarianism with foreign intervention, the lands of the modern-day Czech Republic, Germany, the Netherlands, and more, became the battlegrounds for victorious armies who marched in the name of the Holy Roman Emperor and those opposed to his designs. The Thirty Years' War waged from that date in 1618 to the Peace of Westphalia in between May and October 1648, in an almost unbroken series of wars reinvigorated by the intervention of various foreign powers, such as the Dutch Republic from 1621, Denmark in between 1625 and 29, Sweden from 1630 to 35, and then a joint Franco-Swedish-Dutch coalition from 1635. All the while at the centre of the Thirty Years' War was the Catholic Habsburg dynasty, one branch of which ruled over Spain and its empire, the other ruled over Central Europe in the form of the Habsburg hereditary lands in modern-day Austria, Bohemia and Hungary. This branch of the Habsburg dynasty more often than not also contained the Holy Roman Emperor and used the resources extracted from their hereditary lands to profligate their power and influence throughout the Holy Roman Empire. This episode, originally based on an essay that I did in college, will examine the Holy Roman Emperor at the time of the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War, a man by the name of Emperor Ferdinand II, and it will assess to what extent Ferdinand was a victim of his own success. Ferdinand II was born into the House of Habsburg in Graz, the capital of Styria, Inner Austria, on the 9th of July 1578. Raised and educated by Jesuits from a young age, Ferdinand came to be influenced by their teachings, and upon reaching his majority in 1595, he acceded to rule his inheritance in Styria. Almost immediately Ferdinand began to suppress and persecute Protestants in Styria in favour of Catholics who were in the minority, as the French historian Georges Pages notes. His recklessness in undertaking to convert back to Catholicism, a country in which there was no longer more than a handful of Catholics, is staggering. Despite this apparent demonstration of intolerance, and despite tolerance being one of the required characteristics of the emperors who ruled over such a diverse spread of Christian denominations, Ferdinand was selected by his cousin and emperor Matthias as his successor. Matthias then had to ensure that Ferdinand's succession went ahead in the crowns of Bohemia, Hungary and, critically, during the eventual imperial election, in which Ferdinand's candidature as Holy Roman Emperor would be approved. During the years 1617 and 18, Matthias sought to facilitate this by ensuring that Ferdinand promised to uphold the Letter of Majesty, which was an agreement first approved by Matthias's predecessor and brother, Rudolf II, 
which guaranteed the religious rights, freedoms and privileges of the Bohemians. Historian C.V. Wedgwood described the uphill battle that Matthias had to fight in order to persuade both the Bohemians and the Habsburgs of the Spanish dynasty that electing Ferdinand as King of Bohemia and Hungary and then of course Holy Roman Emperor was the right course of action. She wrote, To say the least of it, he, Ferdinand, was hardly a ruler who would inspire confidence in a predominantly Protestant country on edge with anxiety for their privileges. The Spaniards argued, justifiably, that to let Ferdinand stand was to court disaster for the dynasty. Almost as soon as Ferdinand acquired the approval of the Bohemian Diet for his election as King of Bohemia, he began to make his influence felt, giving additional powers to king's judges and bringing the press of Prague under royal censorship. Ferdinand had promised to uphold a letter of majesty in Bohemia, and this had been a key condition of his election as the King of Bohemia. But Ferdinand had no intention of honouring this promise, and had been absolved of the responsibility for his lies to the Bohemians by assurances from his Jesuit confidants that political necessity did in fact justify a deviation from absolute sincerity. The defenestration of Prague has been analysed by historians and rationalised in many different ways. Yours truly has tried to construct a t-shirt out of it, and we'll see how that goes in the future. What is not disputed, however, was Ferdinand's condemnation of the Bohemians and their letter of majesty. He viewed the rebellion of the Bohemians as treasonous, making little effort to compromise and seeking instead to fight fire with fire, especially with Spanish fuel, in the words of one historian. Ferdinand knew he had been elected to the Bohemian monarchy, as his forefathers had been, but he also saw the Kingdom of Bohemia as the strategic prize for the Habsburgs, which he could not possibly allow to slip from his grasp. Ferdinand thus opposed the Bohemian revolt on constitutional grounds because the Bohemians had deposed him where he believed it was not their right to do so. Any qualms of the legality of the issue or of the idea that the Bohemians under the letter of majesty had the right to depose their sovereign if he mistreated them were fiercely contested by Ferdinand. But Ferdinand also opposed the revolt because he recognised from the outset that to lose Bohemia would mean a severe loss of prestige for the Austrian Habsburgs. This was a fact recognised by the Spanish Habsburgs as well. Ferdinand had great faith in the ability of the Habsburgs to fight and get Bohemia back by force of arms, and thus he didn't view compromise with the same favour as his elder cousin did. The ornate treaty between Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs in 1617 had provided Ferdinand with a wealth of confidence where Spanish help was concerned, because it settled the succession crisis within the HRE and removed the Spanish as potential rivals to the imperial throne in exchange for some territorial concessions to them. Historian Brennan Purcell paints this treaty and Ferdinand's behaviour in an almost damning light, when he writes, With this unconstitutional arrangement, Ferdinand had established a relationship with Madrid that permitted him to pursue his will in Bohemia. The treaty was also symptomatic of Ferdinand's tendency to give away what was not his own, a variation of his generosity that would contribute to the disastrous course of events in the years to come. Indeed, Philip III of Spain began preparations for campaigning in Bohemia, even going so far as to cancel his planned crusading campaign in Algeria, stating, The desperate state of Bohemia and concerns about the rest of Germany has given me a lot to think about, because it is so important to keep the imperial title within the House of Austria. 
although many efforts have been made to find resources to attend to this problem without compromising the Algiers venture, my treasury is in such a state that it would be impossible to undertake both enterprises. Therefore, Ferdinand's intention to fight had existed from an early stage, safe in the knowledge that, by holding the majority of his power, it would be a successful course of action. This determination of Ferdinand's encountered an entirely new dimension over the summer of 1619, though, because during that time the rebel Bohemian Diet voted to officially depose Ferdinand as their king and offer the crown to Frederick V of the Palatinate, the Calvinist elector and leader of the Evangelical Union. Frederick V had long opposed the Habsburg monopoly on the imperial house on constitutional grounds, claiming that such a position as emperor was never intended to fall into the status of a de facto inherited right. While Ferdinand was acquiring the votes necessary in the imperial college in August 1619, the Bohemian Diet had voted to proclaim Frederick king, and after much hesitation, he also decided to accept the crown. It was not without much due deliberation on Frederick's part, because he would surely have been made aware of practically every Protestant prince's opposition to his moves to accept the Bohemian crown, which included that of the Evangelical Union, of which he was the figurehead. Before long, Frederick's cause in Bohemia came under threat from all sides, and his allies one by one abandoned him, providing him with only fractions of the money, men and materials they had promised before. Worst of all for Frederick, his actions had been seen as a personal betrayal by his emperor, Ferdinand, who now moved to gather his own allies and strike, not just at Bohemia, but at Frederick's own lands in the Palatinate. But simply striking at the Palatinate would be unconstitutional. Even Ferdinand was not willing to open the can of worms that was the sovereignty of the elector's domains. So he compromised. Frederick's lands would be invaded, but the constitution of the empire would not be in doubt, because Ferdinand would issue the imperial ban against Frederick, thereby nullifying Frederick's inheritance, lands and title. Ferdinand had to do this not just because he wished to punish Frederick, but also because he had to pay his allies, Spain, Bavaria and Saxony, and because the family was short on cash. It had in fact been decided as early as the 8th of October 1619, in a private meeting Ferdinand had with Maximilian of Bavaria, that upon the defeat of Frederick, Maximilian would acquire Frederick's electoral title. The reaction from Ferdinand's allies was one of concern, as the eminent historian of the period, Geoffrey Parker, notes, Even Ferdinand's allies felt alarmed. The seven electorates had been established in perpetuity by the Golden Bull in 1356, which everyone regarded as the fundamental constitution of the empire. However, Ferdinand pursued this course of action regardless, and exposed his allies' lack of scruples over the matter also, when he found the means to bribe their compliance, usually with promises of land, as Parker continues. Nevertheless, Ferdinand won over the Elector of Saxony only by offering to cede Lusatia, while Ferdinand's brother-in-law, Sigismund of Poland, promised the Elector of Brandenburg extensive rights over East Prussia in return for his compliance. Papal envoys eased the scruples of the Catholic electors when they pointed out that this would give them a permanent majority of 5 to 2 in the Electoral College, instead of 4 to 3. In his victory, Ferdinand may have believed that the granting of the Electoral Palatine lands to Maximilian Bavaria was a worthy price to pay for the service that he'd rendered to his emperor. Ferdinand simply could not have defeated Frederick's Bohemia, which collapsed in the Battle of White Mountain on the 8th of November 1620, 
without the considerable help that he did receive from Bavaria and Saxony, let alone Spain. Following this disaster for Frederick, the former Palatine elector began his long exile in the Netherlands, where he would spend the remainder of his days. While Ferdinand II began what were to be the so-called fat years of the Habsburgs, in the words of David Milland. In 1621, while Frederick V languished in his Hague exile, his troops managed to stumble upon a great find. An imperial courier carrying a package of secret letters that laid out in embarrassing detail the plans of Ferdinand, the contributions of his allies in the papacy, and the Habsburg plot for reorganising the empire after Frederick's defeat. In light of these documents, Frederick tried to muster support for an anti-Habsburg coalition in Europe against Ferdinand, but the war seemed too distant to those present in the meeting with the Danish king, Christian IV, to reach the consensus that military action against Ferdinand. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was actually necessary. Christian IV, the maternal uncle of Frederick's wife Elizabeth, because everyone has to be related at all times, even quizzed Frederick. Who advised you to drive out kings and to seize kingdoms? If your counsellors did so... They were scoundrels. Although Frederick certainly longed to fight for his domains, as was his obligation as an elector, Ferdinand's success was, by the new year of 1621, simply too total to challenge. In April 1621, the Dutch Republic, having observed the terms of the Twelve Years' Truce with Spain, was now back at war with the Spanish Empire. Consequently, this meant that the war prolonged by Frederick from The Hague at least no longer contained his resources alone. For even though the Dutch Republic entered the war in its own initiative as a result of the circumstances of the time, Dutch concerns as to the victory of the Habsburgs in the Palatine certainly played a role in convincing them that the resumption of war was the only course of action. The Spanish would now concern themselves primarily with the Dutch, while they had used the Palatine's strategic place in Europe to better threaten the security of the United Provinces in the months leading up to what Count Olivares, the Spanish Prime Minister, believed would be the resumption of the Spanish-Dutch Eighty Years' War. The Spanish Habsburg's future success in the region against the Dutch 
ran parallel to Ferdinand's own success as his allies overran Bohemia and the Palatine. This was the high point of Ferdinand's military campaigning in Europe, and his success here provoked the Dutch, also under considerable strain from the Spanish, to seek even more aggressively the foundations of a coalition against the Habsburgs, which was beginning to take shape in 1624. By this stage, Ferdinand's success against Bohemia and his allies' success in overrunning the Palatinate, combined with Spain's success against the Dutch Republic, drew the concern of France, England and Denmark. Between 1620 and 22, the forces of Maximilian of Bavaria and the King of Spain had conquered the Palatinate on behalf of Ferdinand II and expected to be rewarded. In the words of David Sturdy, a small reminder should be given so that you know you can actually get a hard copy of this essay slash episode and see for yourself where all the references came from. All you have to do is be a patron for this podcast and this essay episode weird hybrid thingamy will be yours. Okay, just so we got that out of the way, because I have realised I've been referring to a good few historians, and sometimes translating an essay from essay to podcast works, other times you're kind of like, well, where are you getting all this information from, or who are all these historians, so I just thought that little asterisk was necessary, but uh, yeah, okay, let's keep going. So, Bohemia, where the revolt had precipitated the associated conflicts in the empire, had been occupied by Ferdinand's forces, and it was in the process of being reformed by agents of the Habsburgs. C.V. Wedgwood makes a damning judgement of Ferdinand's policies in Bohemia. She writes, It became increasingly obvious with each day that passed that the Roman Church, which dictated Ferdinand's decisions, would not allow him to restore peace to the empire. The emperor seemed resolved to exterminate heresy outside as well as within Bohemia, by continuing and widening the scope of a war which had already brought him much success. Therefore, it was the very existence of Protestantism in the Empire which was now at stake. But the European concern at the success of Ferdinand, of his family and allies, necessitated some action, as was the case with France. While not going so far as declaring war, Alarmed by the Habsburgs' success, early in 1624, Louis XIII opened talks not only with England, but with the Dutch. France lent the Dutch Republic considerable sums of money to defray the costs of fighting a war with blockaded ports, demonstrating that its toleration of Ferdinand's successes would only go so far. France was not the only European power who viewed Ferdinand's success as a threat to their sovereignty, though. Among the most concerned was Denmark and its king, Christian IV, who by early 1625 believed that he needed to take a firm stand against the Catholic conspiracy that he perceived around him. In the words of Geoffrey Parker, Certainly among the many powers of Europe, there was the sense that Ferdinand, between his Palatine campaigns, his re-Catholicization of Bohemia, and his transfer of the electorate from Frederick V to Maximilian, had achieved too much success and upset the balance of power in Europe, in the process. The Savoyard ambassador to Spain wrote to Charles Emmanuel, the Duke of Savoy, that Your Highness should reflect how great are the vicissitudes of this world. For six months ago, all the elements seemed to be uniting to bring this monarchy, the Habsburgs, to ruin. Now they seem inclined to favour everything they do, and the winds are wafting them on their way. The neutrality of England and Denmark, which had been invaluable to Ferdinand for more than a decade, 
had by late 1625 evaporated and the Danes were threatening to intervene directly as the German princes of the Lower Saxon Circle pledged their allegiance to the Danish king Christian IV. Christian IV was, as Duke of Holstein, also a prince of the empire and a Protestant one at that, so his motives for intervention were religiously motivated on some level, though it was, in the words of George Pages, principally to defend their position as German princes in the empire that Christian and his son sought to oppose the progress of the Catholic League's army in the direction of the North Sea and the Elbe. Ferdinand faced opposition to his newly acquired power in his own domains as well, though. In 1623, an uprising had occurred in the east, led by the Prince of Transylvania, Bethlen Gabor, in protest at Ferdinand's religious policies and harmful taxes. Ferdinand then continued with his plans to crown Maximilian of Bavaria as the Elector of the Palatine in the Regensburg meeting that same year, of 1623, an act which only served to alienate both Saxony and Brandenburg, not to mention the fact that the cleavage between Catholic and Protestant princes had been dangerously widened, in the words of C.V. Wedgwood. Then, at a protest meeting held by Saxony and Brandenburg, there was talk on Saxony's part of forming a new Protestant union, and of Brandenburg's of an appeal to force. Combined with what was to follow from the Danes, these were the clearest examples of Ferdinand's success sufficiently unnerving his neighbours and neutrals to the point that they plotted against him, but it would not be the last time that this happened. The Danish impact on the war did not consist of a string of military victories, quite the opposite in fact, but what it did do was take the focus away from the Dutch, where morale was at its lowest point since the murder of William the Silent in 1584. Following years of Dutch defeats that culminated in the fall of Breda to the Spanish in June 1625, the arrival of new enemies and thus new distractions on the scene for the Habsburgs dramatically altered the dynamics of the war. Geoffrey Parker explains that Direct pressure on the Netherlands diminished because, while the Emperor and his German allies concentrated on Denmark, Spain cut back its military spending on the Netherlands. This breathing space seemed to breathe new life into the Dutch, who, for the first time since the beginning of the Eighty Years' War against the Spanish, now held superiority in numbers. This enabled the Dutch to reclaim much of the land lost in the years 1621 to 24, and in 1627, despite reduced military spending, the Spanish government of King Philip IV declared bankruptcy. The following year, the Dutch navy achieved a stunning victory, capturing an American treasure fleet off Cuba worth almost three million pounds, and they used this wealth to fund one of the largest armies yet seen in the region an insanely large force, for the Dutch, certainly, of 129,000 men. By early 1630, the Dutch had completely turned the tables on the Spanish and established a base at Pernambuco on the northeast corner of Brazil. Meanwhile, resources for the army in Flanders plunged and the Spanish defence of the region sagged. Although a signatory of the Hague Alliance between itself, Denmark and England against the Habsburgs' increase and success in power, the Dutch were the only party to actually achieve a measure of success against their enemies, which says a lot for the future of the Danes. However, this should not mask the symbolic fact that by late 1625, the Habsburgs and Ferdinand among them were being pulled in too many different directions to maintain all fronts adequately, as the aforementioned success of the Dutch demonstrated. Indeed, as one historian phrased it, the very success of the Habsburg governments in advancing towards their goals only increased their number of enemies.
which ties in very nicely to our original question, although we'll come back to this later, of course, that being whether Ferdinand II was a victim of his own success. As the 1620s drew to a close, it was rumoured that the worst for Ferdinand was yet to come. Despite the success of the Dutch, they remained the only source of opposition upon the Peace of Lübeck with Denmark on the 7th of June 1629. Ferdinand had himself hoped for better peace terms with the Danes, but his highly successful commander, Albrecht von Wallenstein, had recommended leniency towards Denmark in the interests of preserving the future peace there. While Wallenstein was also anxious about mobilising Scandinavian discontent against the overtly triumphant Habsburgs. But Ferdinand, by this stage, in the words of one historian, had a power unequalled since the days of Charles V, and the Edict of Restitution passed that same year religiously ostracised the North German states by attempting to impose the same Catholicization on their lands as had been experienced in Bohemia. Dramatic transferals of land would follow the issuing of this edict, and one historian called it a triumph not only for the Counter-Reformation but also for the Emperor, since it was he who had issued the edict without reference to any other authority, declared that its interpretation was a matter reserved exclusively for his own judgment, and empowered his commissioners to enforce their decisions with the aid of the imperial army. Also in 1629, the Calvinist prince of Transylvania, Bethlen Gabor, who was a consistent problem for Ferdinand, died. Ferdinand now seemed absolutely triumphant. Having shattered all his enemies, he now concentrated on translating his victory into practical terms, which in fact would undermine the success of the Habsburgs in the process. Ferdinand should have been more wary because, in the year 1629, the Dutch and French had helped to mediate a peace treaty between Sweden and Poland, and this freed up Swedish attention for what was hoped would pave the way for Swedish intervention in the empire. In addition to international affairs, Ferdinand's actions with respect to his commanders deserves attention as well. Another example of Ferdinand's successes in the late 1620s can be found in the career of the aforementioned Albrecht von Wallenstein, whose contribution to the Habsburg cause was second to none. Under Wallenstein, the Habsburgs achieved great successes against the Danes, and as a military genius and loyal citizen, Wallenstein had been enriched with the granting of numerous duchies and titles for his service. At one stage, Wallenstein commanded an army of over 100,000 strong, and he crushed all Habsburg opposition, enabling Ferdinand II to perhaps dream bigger than his office as emperor would ever have allowed. The Edict of Restitution would be implemented with the aid of Wallenstein's victorious army, though not at Wallenstein's necessary approval, since Wallenstein himself doubted both the legality and the need to force the religious conversion on the Protestant lands of the empire, which was what the Edict's implementation soon descended into. However, the success that Wallenstein achieved by 1630 and the power that Ferdinand had accumulated because of these successes appeared to have been too much for Ferdinand's allies to bear, as during a meeting of the Catholic princes in Regensburg in the summer of 1630, in which Ferdinand sought to acquire the right for his son, also called Ferdinand, and the future Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand III, in fact, to succeed him, he was forced to instead release Wallenstein from his command, because all who attended that meeting feared Wallenstein's power and influence over the emperor. 
This dismissal of the most important commander in the Habsburgs' employ on the very eve of Swedish intervention would prove disastrous for Ferdinand in the long run. Wallenstein was said to have remarked when he learned of his dismissal, I have had to make enemies of all the electors and princes, indeed everyone, on the emperor's account. That I am hated in the empire has happened simply because I have served the emperor too well against the wishes of many. Wallenstein, the man who had made Habsburg's success possible for the last five years, was now no longer responsible for the direction of Habsburg war efforts. Such a dismissal could not have come at a worse time for Ferdinand, because the most important intervention of the entire Thirty Years' War was about to occur, that of the Swedes, and the Habsburgs now would have to combat the Swedes without their most effective and successful commander. The storm broke for the Habsburgs when attempts were made to besiege Stralsund, a strategically important port on the Baltic, which only a few months earlier entered into an alliance with Sweden. The Habsburg desire to create a fleet in the Baltic centred on Stralsund, and thus Sweden opposed it fiercely and finally invaded the empire as a consequence, among other issues, such as the suspicion, which was later confirmed, that Wallenstein had been aiding the Poles in their war against the Swedes. With Sweden firmly against him, whatever the reason, Ferdinand then saw the French, who had supplied Sweden with the funds to support their military ventures for some time, develop a Franco-Swedish alliance in 1631 that would, in the event, last almost unbroken up to the end of the 17th century. With the Franco-Swedish accord thus in place, Ferdinand now faced his two most dangerous enemies, united in their opposition to his success, his advancement in Germany and his religious policies. The defeats Sweden would suffer were offset by French monetary aid, and the two partners began to erode the Habsburg war effort. When these two powers finally combined with the Dutch officially in 1635, following the French declaration of war on both branches of the Habsburg families, the writing was on the wall for the Habsburgs. Spain was already drained by its wars in Italy and the Netherlands, and they would begin their descent into chaos from 1640, while Ferdinand II himself died in 1637, having witnessed so clearly the results that his success brought him. After almost two decades of war, his victories had mobilised the European continent almost entirely against him, and this unified opposition would prove his undoing and ultimately lead to the supreme weakening of the Habsburg dynasty. Ferdinand then, to answer the original question, was the victim of his own success, because with every success came the intervention of an enemy that, though in the beginning merely chipped away at his power and weakened him, contributed in the end to his eventual defeat. Once the Dutch had been allowed to survive following the Danish intervention, their contributions kept the anti habsburg cause alive, and Ferdinand's immense success in the late 1620s eventually convinced, first his allies to dismiss his most effective commander in Wallenstein, and then the Swedes to intervene, backed tacitly by France. This response to Ferdinand's success may not have materialised had he perhaps been more gracious in victory, since one historian noted Ferdinand's style was not compromised, but instead, his response to military success was to exploit it to the full rather than seek reconciliation. But it was this very success that persuaded his three enemies in the Dutch Republic, France and Sweden to cooperate and finally form a coalition against him. The creation and eventual victory of this coalition 
is the clearest example that, to the powers involved, Ferdinand's success was simply too much to tolerate, and that, as the author of this success, he had to be stopped at all costs. Okay guys, I hope you've enjoyed this look into a very interesting period in history, and one which we certainly touched on before. Just a reminder, this was an episode, the first, hopefully of many, of WDF Extra, which is the working title, because it's so darn awful, of the members' feed for all patrons of this podcast. If you want to ensure that I make more things like this and take us down trips to memory lane, as well as look into stuff that we've never really looked into before in our spare time, apart from the main episodic series that go on in When Diplomacy Fails, then... The best thing you could do to ensure this happens is to become a patron of this podcast. And the way to do that is to go to wdfpodcast.com or go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Finally, guys, you should know, and I mentioned this during the episode, but just in case you've forgotten, this essay or episode, if you like, can be found in its script form, accessible to patrons of this podcast only on when diplomacy fails' patron page. So go back to it again if you feel like you'd like to track this down. Everyone else, thanks very much for listening. Please let me know what you thought, because I'd like to do more of these in the future if I have time. And even though I really don't have time right now because I'm so busy, for various reasons, I still enjoyed it, and I hope you did too. Okay guys, thanks for tolerating all my rambling and pro-patronizing and all that kind of stuff. My name is Zach, as you know, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks, and I'll see you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.